0: From MIT's Office of Digital Learning, this is Climate Conversations by ClimateX.
1: And I want to make it clear when I talk about uncertainty, because this is a term that I think is sometimes misunderstood. I don't mean uncertainty in the sense that we're not certain that climate change is taking place and that climate change will continue to take place, but how much, to what magnitude, and exactly what regions will be most affected.
0: Welcome to Climate Conversations. I'm Rajesh Kasirangan here in Cambridge. And with me?
2: Hi, Rajesh. I'm Laura here from ClimateX. Hey, Rajesh. Dave Damloor, ClimateX.
1: How are we, everybody?
2: Climate modeling.
0: <laughs> it seems to be the MIT thing to integrate as many different variables and then work some magic. Play around with some big data. Exactly
2: Right. Put it all together in one coherent, comprehensive framework. <laughs> and, and today we are
0: going to interview Elodie and Erwan, who put together, are bringing data and climate modeling and impacts on food systems in the southwestern United States, among other places.
2: And one of the things that I found really exciting about their work is that they're putting together the economic development side together with the climate our Earth system side. That's really very helpful to move forward.
0: Well, let's take a listen and see what happens. So welcome to Climate Conversations. We have two wonderful guests in our studio today. We have um, Elodie Blanc. Hello. (laughs) And uh, Erwan Monnier. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. You guys have done some fantastic work, and we want to ask you lots of questions about it. (laughs)
1: I'm going to say, first, thank you for for uh, reading our work. Um, this comes as a, a very nice surprise. And thank you for inviting us. This is great.
2: We're glad you're here.
0: So Elodie, yes. you've been here at MIT for a while, right? Mm-hmm. Tell us how you got here.
3: Um, so I was doing my PhD in New Zealand, and uh, I got the opportunity to, uh, to work at the joint program. I first came as a visiting student, while I was still doing my PhD. And, uh, and then I got the opportunity to stay as a postdoc and then as a research scientist.
2: And how about you, Erwan? How did you arrive in Cambridge, Massachusetts?
1: Um, so originally I'm from France. I came to the U.S. for a Ph.D. 14 years ago. Uh-huh. Um, so I did my Ph.D. in, in UC Davis. Uh-huh. And I started looking for a postdoc position, trying to stay in the U.S. And I've got, I, I had this amazing opportunity to come to the joint program I was very excited because of the type of work that's being done, very multidisciplinary, sort of a unique program, and I jumped on the opportunity, and I haven't, I haven't left since.
2: Right. So what was your original discipline? UC Davis is famous for uh, agricultural studies and that sort of thing.
1: It is famous for agricultural study. I was actually uh, focusing on atmospheric science. Oh, I see. Um, and I did actually a lot of work, which I felt was very theoretic and not very useful in a way. You know, to look at the the major issue of climate change. Mm-hmm. And so, being able to sort of reposition myself and focusing on climate change, climate modeling was really what excited me uh, a lot about coming at MIT. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Fantastic. You know, we interviewed John Riley not too many weeks ago, and it's wonderful to have more people from the joint program, come visit us. What do you guys actually do?
3: So I actually work on all the topics of water and uh, crops. Mm -hmm. So modeling uh, water uh, allocation in the U.S. and competition for water resources and also the impact of climate change on crops and using this aspect of the work, use generally more uh, statistical methods to look at different impacts, uh, for example, typhoons, or biodiversity, or many different aspects that could impact crop productivity.
0: What about you,
1: Erwin? Um So I'm, I'm a climate modeler. Uh-huh. I, I would say that's really my, my main hat. But I'm also involved in a lot of uh, climate impact assessments, so understanding how climate change will impact various ecosystems or various sectors of the economy. Uh, and so we do that by sort of linking climate models that provide us projections of how temperature and precipitation will change in ver- various regions of the world with models that are going to focus on, for example, you know, crops. Or crop productivity, or agriculture, or water resources, and so that's why you know I'm teaming up with Elodie, uh, who's really an expert on agriculture and water resources, and I'm bringing up so the expertise in the climate modeling, and you know so how would you design a study to understand how climate change and the large uncertainty there is in future projection of climate change can impact um, those sectors, and I want to make it clear when I talk about uncertainty because this is a term that I think is sometimes misunderstood. I don't mean uncertainty in the sense that we're not certain that climate change is is taking place, and that climate change will continue to take place, but how much? We're uncertain about how much, to what magnitude, and exactly what regions will be most affected. So we try to really take that into account, the fact that we don't always know, we don't have perfect foresight our models are not perfect and so we need to understand where do we have really confidence in our projections and where do we lack like that confidence and so we have various methods to to deal with that i don't know, i don't know if you want to get technical there but
2: well our colleague kurt newton in uh, when interviewing john riley uh, said in his view models were our crystal ball because we really can't know, as you are saying, we just simply can't put our fingers on all the variables. We can't specify them. We can't get perfect data. So there's a little bit of guesswork. But it's better than uh, just putting your your fingers up to the wind and see which way it's blowing.
1: Well, yes. I mean, if we didn't have models, I think we would be clueless. We would not be able to really make any projections, making any decisions, and being prepared. At the same time, it's true that our models are not perfect. We cannot just run the model once and be completely sure that uh, what we're getting out of the model is going to be useful. And so that's why, you know, we run a lot of simulations. So, for example, as a, as a society, will we take climate change seriously and are we going to have strategies to limit emissions of greenhouse gases or will we just let those emissions go as they have been, you know, in the last 30, 40, 50 years. Will there be technologies, you know, breakthrough in technologies that will allow us to reduce emissions of greenhouse gases without having that much effort, without needing international coordination? We don't really know that. So that's why we'll usually run scenarios, a scenario where we assume that the world is going on a very dangerous path with a lot of emissions, and another scenario where we're really assuming that there'll be collaboration, coordination efforts around the world and we'll be able to limit emissions of greenhouse so, so gases. So
2: how do you pick the? How do you develop or design those scenarios?
1: So there's, there is a lot of scenarios that already exist. So we can use scenarios that have been designed internationally under the umbrella, umbrella of the IPCC. Uh, so that's the, the well-known uh, UN effort to investigate climate change. We can develop our own depending on whether we believe that those scenarios are still relevant. I mean, most of those scenarios were developed a long time ago and as things happen, like the Paris Agreement, you know, we have the capability at the joint program to develop our own scenarios. And so those are scenarios that take into account changes in population, uh, changes in the economy, and what that means for emissions of greenhouse gases and ma- the management of the land system, uh, like land use change, and, and so forth.
0: So, climate modeler, crop modeler,
3: mm-hmm.
0: how do you trade models with each other? Like, you know, well, these are modeling quite different things. So so
3: we don't trade models. We just integrate them. So one, oh, one's climate model output, are input into my water model, for example.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, so that's when you were talking about an integrated approach. That's really what it means. You're not smooshing together the two atmospheric science and economic development models, but you're joining them in some meaningful way. Like you were saying, output of one is an input to the other, is that right?
3: Yeah, so our integrated framework for the moment, yeah, uh, assembled all these different models representing the Earth and human system mm-hmm. and uh, making them interact with each other. So That
2: sounds really innovative to me. Is, is Anybody else doing that, or are you all the first on the block?
1: Well, so, I mean, so the joint program has been around for, I believe, 20 now, probably 26 years. Mm -hmm. So it is one of the first groups around the world to really take that integrative approach. There is now a lot of new groups that are seeing the value in having multidisciplinary approach with natural scientists and and social scientists Mm -hmm. trying to understand how different systems, the earth system and the human system interact. But I would argue that is still, surprisingly, not the majority of the research that is done uh, around climate change. You don't have that systematic approach of, we need to have people who understand how humans behave. We need to have people who understand how the Earth's behave, the the climate, the land, different ecosystems. That's not necessarily uh, what you see, but I think there's there's a realization that this is where we need to move toward.
0: As someone who is, a, in a way, a consumer of climate modeling, are there other things besides climate models that you incorporate into your work that are outside your own core mm-hmm. specialty?
3: So for example, for the water model that we use in the study, we also use uh, input from a land use model, CLM, community land model. Uh, we also use output from economic models. So that comes from another model in our, developed by other researchers in our department.
0: So, you know you were mentioning the uncertainties associated with modeling, which I think is true of every kind of model. But when you have different types of models that are all being integrated, you're multiplying uncertainties, yeah, right. So how do you correct for that?
1: Now, this is a major issue that we face. There is issues where as information is passed along from one model to another, one component to another, you have uncertainty that is propagating throughout the system. You have new uncertainties that arise as you add new components. Um, so we have various methods. Um, we have methods where we'll, we know that in different models we have particular parameters or you know numbers that we know are not certain. And so what we'll do is we'll look at those particular numbers or or parameters and we'll vary them. And we'll run very large ensembles, very large ensemble simulations. So that means hundreds of simulations where the only thing we change is going to be that parameter because we know that it's an important parameter. And we know that it will have impacts throughout the entire modeling system. So that's why... A lot of the work that we do is sort of designing those large ensembles, understanding where are the the key uncertainties, what we don't know, what we know more. And this is quite complex. And I'm not saying that we have it figured out. As, you know, there's more and more data available. As there's more computational power, we have those very large clusters, computer clusters. Uh, we, we end up having this big issue of just running and running and running simulations uh, and trying to make sense of exactly what we're doing. So we can combine these uh, issues with machine learning techniques, uh, which is something that now is becoming a lot more important, is really to uh, design models that are able to make sense of all this data in a very systematic way. And so that's really where we're we're moving toward. I mean,
0: and, and of course, every probabilistic scenario has this problem, right? That if there are independent events whose uncertainties you're adding, then at some point it's not good. And again, I, I, I also want to reemphasize what you mentioned. This is not uncertainty about the existence of climate change. It's uncertainty about the specific trajectories it might take, and and which really brings me to my next question. Are we going in the direction of greater collaboration? And if we are not, what might be coming our
1: way? So I think we are going toward uh, more integrated and collaborative research. I mean, you can see that in, in various aspects. So you can see that also in the way funding goes now. I mean, I'm still a fairly junior researcher, so I I cannot tell you how it used to be 40 years ago, but I remember, at least when I was a grad student, when you were applying for funding, when my advisor was applying to funding, that was for a very specific project for one person. Now it's very difficult to actually get funding for a very narrow problem where you don't bring in multiple researchers, multiple institutes. Um, So I think that already shows that there's at least From a strategy point of view of how research is funded, this realization that we need to have collaborative research that includes multiple disciplines. Now, does that translate in how we do research? We are, for example, we're not a department at MIT. We're a joint program. We're sort of an independent center. And that's, to me, the evidence of, there's a lack of understanding that maybe the structure of universities may have to change. You cannot just have a Department of Economics, a Department of Atmospheric Science. We also need to have uh, ways to collaborate and to understand that this is not just one discipline at a time. There's also uh, this integrated a vision of how research should be done, and as far as I know, you don't have those types of departments in most universities. Departments that really integrate all sorts of um, disciplines and expertise.
2: They're all kind of working in parallel.
1: They're working in parallel, and, and usually there'll be some sort of initiative that will bridge around those departments. For but a it, time. It, for time, and it may or may not be very successful. I mean, that, that that's unclear.
2: I wanted to uh, shift a little bit to the specific study that caught our eye. Yeah, Uh, when we were scanning the MIT news uh, a few weeks back. And that is the study that you did on uh, irrigation water shortages and irrigated crops, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking that's a particular instance where you were trying to bring disciplines together. You combined the atmospheric science and the economic science, economic development folks, and you were really looking at a particular case that illustrated a larger point uh, that speaks, I think, to what Josh is talking about. Um, Can you tell the listeners a little bit about the study?
3: About the study? Yeah. So we were we wanted to know if uh, irrigation as a way of ensuring food security if is actually a sustainable uh, strategy in the future, especially in the context of climate change. Because yields are much higher for crops that are irrigated because they are not affected by the lack of water. But if you don't have the water available in the place where you are currently irrigated, then we wanted to study where these regions are, where, where would there be hotspots of water stress and where uh, for for the most commonly grown plants in the U.S. So we want to integrate all the aspects of the human system and the her system. So looking at economic activity, how it will impact demand for water in terms of industry for industrial activity, for economic activity, for cities, for all the different users of water on top of agriculture. And with this economic activity will have consequences system of emissions, CO2 emissions and greenhouse gases, and how that will affect climate, and how this climate uh, will affect water resources in terms of how much precipitation there will be or how much runoff uh, that will induce, and then how much water there will be available for, for these different sectors, and specifically for irrigation. S-
0: so Erwan, how did you bring... Your climate modeling into this exercise.
1: Yeah, so as you mentioned, this is a fairly complex study yeah. with a lot of a lot of elements. So what we did is, you know, we brought together you know, economic models, models of the world economy, uh, a model of the U.S. economy that's a lot more disaggregated, uh, a climate model, a model that allows us to look at how much cr- uh, water will crop uh, need in the future as climate changes, a water model that allows um, to represent that competition from the different sectors. So, you know, the, the way it works is at the beginning I mentioned scenarios. You know, so we designed scenarios, scenarios of how will the world economy change in the future, and what are gonna be the climate mitigation efforts. So we had three scenarios. One scenario where we assume there's really no efforts whatsoever to curb emissions of greenhouse gases, and then two scenarios that are really a lot of mitigation at different levels. One mitigation with the aim to limit the increase in temperature to 2 degrees, which is sort of the aspirational goal of the Paris Agreement, and another one that's more intermediate between the two of those. And so once we're able to model under those scenarios how the the world economy is going to develop and how emissions of greenhouse gases uh, will move forward, we can bring those emissions into our climate model, and that allows us to determine what will be the the impact for temperature and precipitation and other key variables over the entire world, but also for that particular study focusing on the U.S.
2: So why would decision makers, politicians care about your results?
1: I, I would hope that they'll care because they'll realize that, you know, if we just work as uh, nothing is happening and we don't prepare for the impact of climate change will end up being a very a difficult situation and in particular there will be basins in the US where specific crops will not be able to grow well and that will affect you know the livelihood of, of farmers in those particular basins. and that's usually what we found in our study in the southwest of the US so, and it sorry. so
0: can you give us an example of a specific location and a specific crop, that's that's going to suffer. Yeah, so, for
3: example, if you're a farmer in the Gila Basin in Arizona, then you, your cotton will only produce about ten percent of the yield that it could produce if it was fully irrigated.
0: So, how soon is this going to happen? Like, when when will the D-Day come for the Arizona farmer? <laughs>
3: So there is a, uh, so in our study, there is already some water stress at the moment, uh-huh. but our study goes to 2050.
0: So by 2050, I mean, nobody's going to get to 90% because at that time, I mean, if there's a 90% reduction, you're going to be unsustainable much before that, right?
3: Yes. And so there is a high chance that they will just grow something else that doesn't require as much water or they will pack up and go somewhere else
1: yeah what we really wanted to look at is the way irrigation is used right now in the US is it sustainable Uh, if we just continue doing everything the way it's done now is it gonna work out and so uh, I just want to point out that when we look at the entire US the effect is not really big it's really important for specific locations in the, and then in, usually in the specific location, the specific basin, it's not where you have the most production. It's because it's areas where there's already water stress. So obviously that's not oh, where you have. the marginal places. Correct. Right. So what, but it's important. I th- I, at least we believe it's important because this uh, this means for some people, you know, their livelihood is going to be drastically impacted. And so there's ways you can adapt. I mean, you can be more efficient about how you use water, or you can just Stop. You just stop uh, farming there, and you move somewhere else. But you know, when you look at the scale that we're looking at, we, we don't know what it will actually mean for a lot of farmers, how many will be affected. So this is really unknown te- territory about you know how will we respond to it. And so what we really wanted to do is to point out that those issues are likely going to take place in a few decades. And we need to be prepared. We need to have strategies. The, the system is so complex, you, you have to, we have to make simplifications. We cannot take into account everything. But at least what we want to convey is we need to do this in the integration. We need to understand how economic development, climate change, how that interacts with water resources, how, what does that mean for agriculture, for crop production, and essentially for food security. And pointing out that there is a problem, we don't have we don't yet have all the solutions because we haven't designed strategies yet uh, you know you have a lot of uh, people right now decision makers who don't even realize that those are those issues are coming and they're coming fast
0: so if you want to take this research into the public sphere now that may mean decision makers that may mean new technologies and companies and perhaps even new agricultural practices?
1: How would you go about it? Well, that, that, no, that's a very good question, and I think that's something that we struggle with is, you know, as Aloji said, we have we do all this research, and I we would feel it would be a waste if it actually did not result in anything concrete, but it's difficult. I don't think we can just see one person in particular and say, you need to care about your county or your state. We don't have that power. We cannot just call the governor of Arizona and get an appointment. No? No. Um, But uh, I think what we're hoping is, first of all, MIT is a great platform. Um, There's a lot of visibility uh, that comes from MIT research. Um, The drone program also has done a lot of work with um, decision makers and and has, I believe, had an impact. What we want to do is first make people aware that they need to think about those problems. And I think it would be great if every um, decision maker in every state thought, maybe I should determine whether or not my state will be impacted and how it will impact it and what it will mean for businesses in my state. I don't think that's what's happening. And I don't think you can just convince one person with, even if we got a meeting, a one hour meeting with um, the governor of Arizona, I don't think you'd be able to convince uh, him to To change the way they they think about the future, it's also a very difficult problem because we're looking at multiple decades. And most politicians, I think, they care about being reelected for maybe you know four, eight, ten years. You've noticed and the <laughs> pattern. Here, <right? laughs> I I think so. <laughs> so it's it's difficult, and I don't know. Um.
0: Sadly, I think we are all facing the same problem, right? Which is, we are looking at a major, major catastrophe waiting to happen and we are all looking for ways to get more attention.
2: Everybody has to eat. Right. Right? So that's the food security piece.
0: Talking about everybody has to eat, we are running out of time and we usually end our podcast with what we call a magic wand question. So if you could wave a magic wand both you, LD and you, Erwan, and you could change one thing about the world, ideally to get the world or the aspects of the world that you care about to take, pay more attention to climate change. What would that magic wand
1: be? I, I, I just wish that you know, climate change was not a dis- divisive issue that is just you know divisive in terms of the political spectrum. And that people just realize there's no conspiracy. We're not millionaires riding a gravy train, a gravy boat train, whatever the expression is. You know, we, we're researchers. You know, I think we work pretty hard. Um, we just see that there's there's a major issue there, and we're trying to understand what it is and how do you go at solving it. Um, that's all we're doing. And I think until this is you know resolved and people understand that this is science and and whether you believe or not that we know everything, or whether you understand that there's a lot of uncertainty, just uh, being able to work together, regardless of what party you're from, that's my that's what I would, I wish could happen because I think that would really that would change everything. That would be a game changer.
3: Yeah, and well, related to what uh, Erwin was saying is that uh, I would say that the if the decision maker could actually like read and uh just base their decision based on the research, the very good research that a lot of people around the world are making and that point to solutions like for example for climate change, for example, uh putting a price on carbon emission like such as a cap and trade system that, that they many studies have shown that would be the most efficient way of uh pricing emission and uh reducing overall emissions. Uh if they could just like listen to the to to the research and like follow follow okay. the recommendations that would be. So
0: if I may try to capture, politicians should work with each other, and they should listen to reason. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty high bar. Right? <laughs>
1: okay. Which is which has been the trend? I feel <laughs> like in the last few years, right? It's really been the trend.
0: Yes, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Um, so thank you so much.
2: <laughs> Merci Pierre. <laughs> yeah. And
0: Merci I hope that. All your wishes are granted. That the minute we leave this room, the governor of Arizona calls you. <laughs> uh, and in the meantime, we would love to have you back in a little while to tell us what's next and how these models are going.
1: Thank yeah. you so much for, in, for having us. This was really great.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
3: Thank you very okay. much. Bye Bye-bye. bye. Bye bye.
0: Boy, that was a fascinating conversation. And I hope the governor of Arizona is listening to us and ready to call Elodie and Erwan and find out everything that they do. Let's hope so. Talking about people listening to us.
2: Yeah, um, we love all of you listeners out there. So please do reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter. You can get in touch with us directly if you have any um, anything you want to share, anything you'd like us to do in the future. You can reach out to us at climatex-feedback at mit.edu. And please do rate and subscribe to us on iTunes. We'd love to hear feedback from you, and it really helps us grow this wonderful community. So until the next time. Thanks for listening.